Hello, I'm Kim Katola, host of Cradle My Heart Radio. Our mission is preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. And our vision is to bring abortion recovery to the church, reaching out to equip and encourage pastors, elders, ministry leaders, and others so they can minister God's love to the millions of Christians personally impacted by this moral crisis of our time. Saving lives and healing hearts, this is Cradle My Heart Radio. Find us online at cradlemyheart.org. Where can you find God's voice in the noise on reproductive choice? For over a million women and men each year, the question goes beyond politics to become much more pressing and personal, both before and after the choice. And we are called to love the little children just as God does. Listen to Cradle My Heart Radio with your host, Kim Katola, speaker, writer, and broadcaster, sharing God's truth to prevent abortion and help those it hurts. Learn more at cradlemyheart.org. Hello, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Cradle My Heart Radio. And are you ready to roll up your sleeves and learn pro-life apologetics? That's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm going to reflect to you uh, a summer of learning with Scott Klusendorf, the author of the book, The Case for Life. We got together at Oklahoma Wesleyan University five, seven years ago now and studied under Scott's tutelage uh, as a cohort of pro-life advocates, including women mostly who were serving in pregnancy help organizations. And you'd be surprised at how seasoned people who've been dealing with the question of abortion and defending life um, were were really impacted by this teaching and felt like they had just such greater confidence, such greater ability to match wits with people who don't have the same point of view. And I think it's really important for us as church leaders, as pastors, and as elders and Bible study teachers, and or maybe you're working in pregnancy help organizations, it's really important that we be so grounded in truth that we can stand. Because, wow, as 2022 has shown us, the attacks are coming, they're flowing freely. <laughs> Once um, people who advocate for abortion rights began to feel as if those rights might vanish, the attacks have been flowing freely. And even if it's just something as simple as a, an exchange on social media or, you know, a conversation with someone who around the, you know, a family holiday table, uh, the level of hostility from zero to 60 is sometimes shocking to me, uh, maybe because God has drained all the hostility out of my heart on this issue. And I pray that he keeps me in that place. Um, I used to be angry about, mm, I used to be angry about the church's lack of a response to abortion. I felt that, and I've said this before on this program, every young woman knows and every teenager and young woman knows if she wants birth control, she's making the decision to become sexually active. She knows exactly where to go so that she can do that, quote unquote, safely. But no young woman, really, in my experience, has ever approached a church and said, you know, I'm facing this big decision. My boyfriend and I are to a point, and what can you tell me? How can you help me? I mean, maybe individually, girls might be asking their youth leaders or, you know, a, a, a trusted Christian friend, older woman, 
Titus to a woman in her life, maybe, but certainly not to the extent that the pro-abortion rights activists have managed to gain the field, right? And so I used to be kind of angry about that. Like, why is the church so quiet? Why didn't they help me? I was nominally Christian. If I had known that I could have turned to them, et cetera, et cetera. Now I no longer feel that way. I feel as if uh, the church is under attack. The spiritual warfare is inescapable in our culture and in our world. And so there's no point in us as defenders of life and as followers of Jesus Christ who holds us in the palm of his hand to become angry at anyone who even is practicing the grave evil of abortion. We have the sword of the Spirit and so much at our command uh, without resorting to anger. And so that's what I want to do today is to talk about, okay, what kind of tools do we have in our toolkit that we can use? And the thing that I really like about the case for life is it keeps you from being disqualified before the game begins, right? Because uh, if someone happens to know that you're a Christian and you make a comment such as, you know, abortion is evil. It's the intentional killing of an innocent human being, and that's not right. Someone may say back to you, well, you're a Christian. I don't believe the Bible, which is not logical, right? (laughs) You didn't say anything about your faith. You talked about human rights and the morality of killing. So you can then point out to them, I'm, I'm not arguing from faith. I'm simply telling you how I feel about, you know, the killing of innocent human beings. Excuse me, allergies are impacting my throat today. Excuse me. But anyway, so that's the whole point of this approach that Klusendorf has crafted. That yes, it absolutely harmonizes with Scripture. It's absolutely a biblically sound approach. But you don't lead with your faith or with the Bible or with a Christian worldview because many people will dismiss out of hand everything that you have to say. So we answer the question, what is the unborn from science? And then we answer the question, when does life begin to have value from philosophy? And then we answer the question, is abortion immoral from ethics? So we're going to talk today about how to defend human life from science, from philosophy, and from ethics, and then, yes, point out how the Bible harmonizes with those approaches for us as Christians when we're engaging with other Christians. But all, almost all abortion rights arguments are based on begging the question. And begging the question is when you assume a premise, but you don't offer any evidence to support that assumption. So you may hear people say, well, I understand you're against abortion because you think that it's a life. But even if it is, it's the zygote is smaller than the head of a pin. So how can you say that a being whose size is as small as the head of a pin has the same rights as a fully grown woman, as, a, as an actual human being? And what they're doing with that is assuming that the zygote is not fully human and deserving of equal human rights because they're fully human. And so you can challenge their assumption. How do you know that the zygote isn't equal to a woman, a grown woman who may be carrying that zygote in her body? So that's begging the question. It's making an assertion without offering any evidence. 
And the once you know this, this is like a golden key to having really effective conversations that don't bog down and get gridlocked. Once you know that you know the person who's expressing an abortion rights viewpoint is probably assuming that the unborn is not a human being, and they're probably not going to offer you any evidence because there is no evidence to defend that assertion, okay? They assume the unborn are not human persons worthy of protection under the law. And so if you notice someone making this assumption, you can quickly ask them, what evidence do you have to support the idea that a fetus isn't a human being in the same way his or her mother is? Of course, again, no such evidence exists. And you may then have the chance to share truth with them. Maybe it is possible they haven't thought it through, right? It's not, you know, it's not necessarily that they're going to die on that hill. It's just that they really haven't thought it through. It seems logical to them. Yeah, I can't see this baby. This baby's really teeny tiny. The pregnancy is very early. No one knows when life begins. They've had, they're sort of swimming in this confusion the sea of confusion, <laughs> and you can really bring some clarity to their thinking. So if someone is sincerely trying to understand your position, you may win them by pointing out their assumptions. The assumption that the unborn is not human is so pervasive, most people are not even aware of having believed it as fact or truth, okay? So wait a minute, is that a biological male that you're thinking about talking about here on this presentation on abortion? Yes. And do you know why men can have and express their opinions about abortion? <laughs> okay. Let's talk about this. There are several reasons. Uh, because first of all, arguments don't have genders. If we're going to talk about what is right or wrong, that it's right or wrong for women and men. Arguments don't have genders. Secondly, it is sexist to suggest that men are not stakeholders in the act of procreation. I mean, other than Mary, there's been a man involved in every pregnancy since the birth of Jesus Christ. And nor is it's also sexist to assume that men aren't stakeholders in legislation affecting dependent humans. They most certainly are because they are fathers. Third, we are now at a place where transgender rights activists are making strides to change the language around pregnancy and childbirth based on the claim that men can become pregnant. Uh, so the idea that abortion is a women's only issue is off the table by their rules. And fourth, furthermore, the Supreme Court rulings of Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton in the 1970s were made uh, by a panel of seven male justices. If you don't want men's opinions, then you better throw out Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. So <laughs> as you make the case for life, it's important to know that proactively proclaiming truth is always a stronger position than having to answer claims about reproductive justice or women's rights, because arguing against someone claiming rights for women puts us in a one-down position. No one wants to be seen as being against women's rights, and that really is not the crux of the issue. And so I want to talk quickly about uh, persuasion and cognitive dissonance, because, you know, basically the one-minute case for life is this. The science of embryology teaches us that from conception forward, the embryo is a distinct, living, whole human being. You didn't come from an embryo. 
you once were an embryo. And there's no difference between the embryo you once were and the adult you are today that would make it moral to kill you then, but not now. Differences of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. That is the case for life. You're making the case from the science of embryology. You're making the case from philosophy, again, answering the question, when does human life begin to have value? If we know from science life begins at conception, then really we're going to argue most people stick on that point, the, the when does life have value, right? And how can you equate a tiny developing life with a fully developed life? You know, so that's a philosophical question. It's not really a scientific question. And so if you can answer that in a compelling way, you may have already won the entire argument. But then, uh, uh, you know, you still have to deal with the ethics of it because some people may decide, you know, I just don't value. Well, then you have to point out to them that that's, that's fine, but be intellectually honest enough to admit that you advocate killing human beings with impunity because that's what you're advocating for. All right. So those are, those are the three ways that we argue it. And we'll come back to those three ways as we go along here, but it's important to understand how persuasion works. Persuasion requires patience, precision, powerful illustrations, and perspective. And persuasion happens through a prolonged campaign using concrete word choices to relate to your audience through stories and vivid language based on data from hostile to neutral sources, okay? That is it in a nutshell. And that's from one of my mentors, Mark Newman, at Speaker for Life. And, you know, what he's driving at there is that we didn't come to accept the killing of innocent human beings overnight, nor did we come to accept it from concrete word choices, you know, from abortion rights advocates, it's been a prolonged 50-plus-year campaign of illustrations tugging at the heartstrings of women who uh, had to obtain an illegal abortion back in the day, according to their story and version of events, and how dangerous that was for them with these vivid illustrations. And then there, there really weren't any sources to justify legalizing abortion, so they made them up. And we've talked about that uh, in the history of Bernard Nathanson. You can look for that episode on our podcasts uh, and find those at cradlemyheart.org. But they did. They made them up. And so I'm not suggesting that we need to be persuasive through, you know, fake news or propaganda. But if you can find a story, for example, in the New York Times that will tell you that fewer than 1% of abortions happen because of rape, which has been reported by the New York Times. Someone who's likely to be supporting abortion rights probably isn't going to question the New York Times as your source. They may not want to hear from you about Fox News or um, the Federalist or other considered right-wing sources, but they probably will accept the Washington Post or the New York Times. And you can find surprisingly valid information on some of these sources if you know how to look for it. So... First of all, that the fact that it's a prolonged campaign, you know, I think it was David Brooks who said, everyone should dedicate their lives to a cause that they know won't be won in their lifetime. <laughs> and if ever the struggle 
for defending unborn human life were such a struggle. We're really seeing it right now. And I say that because even if abortion were to become illegal in all 50 states and at a federal level, that we were to ban abortion and abolish it, there still would be people who would feel desperate enough to want to seek it out. There is nothing new under the sun, as the Bible has instructed us in Ecclesiastes. And people have been sacrificing children, abandoning children, and yes, using abortifacients even into the ancient Egyptian culture. There is nothing new under the sun. Abortion is not only an issue for our time. There's a great book by George Grant, a pastor in the Presbyterian Church, titled The Third Time Around, and he says, it's just our turn to fight this fight as Christians and as followers of Christ. So it's going to be a prolonged battle. Arm yourself for it. Pace yourself, right? Um, Patience means you want to always leave the door open for another conversation. You do not want to crush anyone, right? It's not up to you to change a heart. So be humble enough to say, you know, I don't have an answer for that. May I do a little research and get back to you? And also, you know, remember to pray before and after you have an encounter, especially if it's a repeat conversation with someone that you know is very of a very different mindset than you, right? And so next precision means that you're very careful with your language. You use concrete language. And if you'll notice, it takes a little longer for me to say an unborn baby and his or her mother rather than saying its mother. But I think it's important because just saying his or her mother of an unborn child humanizes them in a way that abortion rights advocates usually don't. <laughs> they won't admit it's a baby. They'll, you know, engage in wordsmithing fetus, which only means little one. And sometimes with some people, I just say little one because that's what fetus means. But be very precise in your language. These things really matter. And it, and a word choice can really be persuasive. Um, instead of saying, I think or I feel life begins at conception, say, the science of embryology teaches us life begins at conception. There's a great resource on this, by the way, if you do not, if you want to fact check me, or if you, if you haven't been fully persuaded of this concrete truth of scientific fact. And it's from Princeton. Princeton.edu, if you'll, if you'll put in your search engine um, Princeton embryology quotes, you will find the various uh, embryology textbooks, which are quoted as saying, uh, in one case, that from conception forward, the embryo, the zygote, and then the embryo is a distinct living whole human being. The idea here scientifically is that nothing gets added to the baby as the pregnancy progresses. From his, his or her own unique DNA, the child develops as he grows, as he or she grows. And so it's not that, well, if we, you know, if we take that life, they won't yet have, you know, the brain that gets added later. Well, all of the building blocks for all of the development are present from the very beginning, Nothing gets added to the fetus as the pregnancy progresses. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I think it's really important. And, you, and those, that, uh, it's a PDF that you'll find at Princeton Embryology Quotes. Uh, I think it will help you. It'll, it, it may help you 
to refine your thinking, but it may also help you to make a powerful argument. And so powerful illustrations also include vivid word pictures to evoke an emotional response. And so um, be sure always to cite your source. If you refer to embryology, name a textbook and or, you know, give a link or mention, as I did, uh, you know, that Princeton has a, uh, a database and a compilation of quotes that are very helpful on this question. Persuasion, by the way, means accepting new ideas as true. But this may initiate anger rather than connection, okay? Because <laughs> when you're confronted with something that you have that, that disproves something you've believed for a really long time, you know, what do you, you don't actually like slap your forehead and say, thank you, I've been wrong. Thank you for telling me that I've been so wrong about everything for so long. William Rusher has a book titled How to Win Arguments More Often Than Not. And he said nobody, when confronted with a really devastating argument against something in which they've hitherto deeply believed, says, by gosh, I never thought of that. On the contrary, the blow will be resented. Very often it will be sustained in obstinate silence because the ego needs time to marshal its defenses, either to try to restore the toppled idol or to come to terms with the toppling or to regain shattered composure. And he goes on to say, it's precisely then, however, in the silent weeks or months after the argument, when no one is present and the defeated arguer confronts only himself in the recollection of his defeat, that the argument may truly said to be won. Because then, if ever, is when the loser of the argument tacitly abandons his former position. And I love this. He says, he may never admit to having changed his mind at all. But at the very least, he will have rearranged his mental furniture to ensure he does not hereafter sit so often or so heavily on that all-too-demonstrably fragile chair. <laughs> oh, I love an intellectual statement like that. But what he's saying is... You may persuade someone who's never going to thank you for it, who's never going to admit that their mind has been changed, but they may stop leaning on the argument that you have debunked. And so that's why it's really important to do this. You know, hardcore abortion proponents are not your primary target audience. And I think it's so important for us to heed the Lord's warning to not cast pearls before swine. And he tells us why. He said, they're going to trample you. They're going to turn and trample you. It's not just that they will devalue the holiness of a truth that you've presented to them, which is serious enough, but you're going to get trampled. And how does that in any way reflect well on the argument you're trying to win? So, you know, if you sense that someone is hardcore and... Um, they're just not persuadable. You're aiming for the 60% who say they're pro-choice because they either haven't thought it through or they're trying to conform or gain acceptance. You know, I saw on social media recently a young bride with her wedding party, her bridesmaids, all in their beautiful regalia with their bouquets, holding signs about funding abortion, if you need an abortion, where to go, and bands off our bodies, holding signs outside the church where they were to be, you know, where the bride was to be married. And I want to suggest to you, 
she's not your target person to try to persuade. God's going to have to do a work in her heart to show how the hardness of her heart to post such a thing with a, a wedding imagery is is God's going to have to change her heart. I'm not saying don't talk with her, but have a reasonable expectation about who it is that you're actually addressing. And then you need to really be aware of cognitive dissonance because, again, passive responses are just, they're going to just try to get through the conversation and not, you know, it may look like you're having no impact at all. Or a passive-aggressive response may be twisting it. They get it wrong on purpose. Excuse me. Or someone may become aggressive and blame you and attack the source, go to an ad ad hominem fallacy, right, where they just start talking about how you're just a mean person, you don't want women to have rights and not to have any answers to, you know, the facts that you've presented them. And the thing to remember is that when all of these responses come your way, at the end of cognitive dissonance is when someone accepts the new information uh, as true. And so it may take more than one conversation, but as I say, it's um, it's diplomacy, not D-Day. And the true goal of pro-life apologetics is to leave a pebble in their shoe. Again, they're probably not going to tell you, wow, you've changed everything. Thank you for setting me straight. But if you leave and they have in their mind something that you said that they cannot stop thinking about because it has challenge something that they have believed in in the past, then you've done your work and you've given them something to think about and something for God to use to change their hearts in a positive direction so that they will defend unborn life, protect it, and come to see the issue through God's eyes as you do as well with the Imago Dei and to protect and prevent the shedding of innocent blood. Learn more at cradlemyheart.org and especially from Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life. Thanks for being here and see you next time. This is Cradle My Heart Radio with Kim Katola, preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. Please get in touch with Kim. Find out more at cradlemyheart.org. You can listen to the podcast on all platforms.